Book of James, chapter 4. Let me uh, pray for us before we begin. Heavenly Father, I pray for our time together this morning as we dive now into the preaching of your word, Lord, I, I pray that you would use me as an instrument, God, that I would not be proclaiming my own words or any wisdom that comes from me, Lord, because as I know and everyone else, Lord, knows that that is just, that's the folly of man. And my words have no power, Lord, but it is your word that holds all power. It's your word, Lord, that holds all authority. And so I pray this morning that it would be your word that shines forth here in these next few minutes together, God, that it would be the uh, convicting power of your word by the Spirit, Lord, that had brought us to salvation would also sanctify us this morning. I pray, Lord, also for those who may be sitting in here, who may be friends with the world, who may be not knowing who you are, God, and maybe hanging on to religion or sitting there with doubt, Lord, that you would work in their hearts as well. Open their hearts to see their need for Christ, to see the glory of the good news of the gospel, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, James chapter 4. I'm glad I didn't have to do all that reading by myself this morning. So thank you, uh, Charles and uh, Bobby, for coming up and doing that. We'll touch on those passages in just a few moments here. But a little bit of of recap as we've been going through the book of James. Last week, Pastor Keith spoke on this, the difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. And quite frankly, the two are at odds with each other. Worldly wisdom is at odds with God because... Uh, Even Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that even the best worldly wisdom is still foolishness to God. But then Paul also says that the wisdom of God is foolishness to man. Man cannot understand the things of of God because he is in the flesh. And those things can only be discerned by the Spirit of God. And so, likewise, it is foolishness to to, um, the unbelieving man, the things of God, because he thinks according to the flesh. And so last week, Pastor Keith walked us through um, this idea of wisdom, but I really want to touch on the end of last week's passage, which leads into what we're talking about today. In verse 17, chapter 3, verse 17, James says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, why is that important for us today? Well, because in our passage today, in the very next verse, really James is continuing this thought because he immediately breaks into from wisdom bringing peace because of peacemakers who are wise in the wisdom of the Lord. Then he says, what is the source of quarrels and conflict among you. What is the opposite of peace? What is the, what is the um, antithesis to, to godly peace? Quarrels and conflict in the body of Christ. 
So let me read our passage for us this morning. If we could stand together for the reading of the Word of God. James says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not from this? From your pleasures that are waging war among your members? You desire, but you do not have. You murder and you covet, but you are not able to obtain. You fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wickedly, in order that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever desires to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or does the scripture speak in vain? Does the spirit that he has caused to dwell in us long enviously? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Amen. You can be seated. So our first point this morning in the bulletin, our first point this morning is that our friendship with the world, our friendship with the world causes conflict in the body of Christ. If we could put it a different way, okay? Our friendship in the world disrupts the peace that comes from godly wisdom because what is happening is worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom disrupts this peace And it's causing fights within the church, quarrels. And so James says, what what, what is the source of these quarrels? See, if godly wisdom makes peacemakers and creates peace, then what is the source of these quarrels and these fights? And then he says in verse 1, this conflict is from our pleasures. It's from our inward cravings. And it's waging war among our members. Now, this members here is not uh, members of a church. What he's talking about is it's waging war on the inside. See, those of us who are in Christ, we recognize this, right? We, We recognize that when the pleasures of the world, when the cravings of our sin come knocking at the door of our heart, there's a there's a wrestling match that takes place, right? There's a recognizing this is wrong. I, 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 I don't want to give in to this. I, we, we talked about this back at the beginning when we were talking about temptation. But it wages war within us. And then James continues. You desire, but you do not have. So you murder and you covet, but you are not able to obtain. See, that when our pleasures... And our desires build up inside of us. We, we get to a point where uh, we're even willing to sin in order to get these things. And if we're at a place where we're sinning in order to get these things, this, this murdering, this coveting that he's talking about, remember, he referenced murder just uh, two chapters before in the context in the same way that Jesus talked about it in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, we're, we're looking at the heart here. Right, So we don't get off the hook because I've never killed anybody. To murder in your heart is to have this bitterness and this hatred towards others. And so you desire these things, these, these wicked things, these self-pleasures, and really as we're going to find out, it's, it's because of this friendship with the world. And so what happens is you get to a point where these pleasures build up and you're so consumed by them that you're filled with covetousness 
and hatred and bitterness until you can obtain them. And since you don't obtain them, what this does, then he says again, you fight and you quarrel. So as the bitterness builds up, as the coveting builds up, we're not at peace. We're focused on our desires and our pleasures, and what happens is it creates conflict and quarreling within the body of Christ. He says, you don't have because you don't ask. And then he takes that a step further. He says, you, if you do ask, you ask and do not receive because you're asking for your own pleasures. That you want to spend it on your own pleasures. This is, so at this point, we've taken these desires that we recognize, hopefully, that are selfish desires. We go before the Lord and we start asking God, like, God, give this to me. I mean, we, we can recognize with that. Where we go to the Lord, and maybe we even understand that this is not a very wise thing. But it's something I strongly desire. And if it's something I strongly desire, then maybe it's from the Lord. He's really put it on my heart. And so therefore, I ask God, even though I know deep down it goes against the Word of God, this is not what God would desire. I think sometimes, just for an example of this, and it's, it's an easy example, but sometimes we see this with, you know, when, when a spouse cheats on, an, on, on their husband or their wife, they get this inkling inside, like, well, you know, I really desire this person, and this desire is there because the Lord's put it there. And they deceive themselves, and they get so um, uh, wrapped up in, in what their pleasures are and what they desire that they even start trying to bring it to the Lord. Lord, will you let me have this? But James says, you, you, you don't obtain, because even when you do ask, you're asking for the purpose of spending it on your own pleasures. It's really for our own selfish ambitions. And these selfish ambitions come from having friendship with the world. So, James then says in verse 4, you adulteresses, now, some of your translations say adulterous people, some say adulterers. Um, the, the word is feminine, it's adulteresses. And the reason why the, the word is feminine is because what we understand in the New Testament is that we are, as the church, we are the bride of Christ. And so we have entered into, as the church, a covenant relationship with the Lord. We've entered into a covenant relationship with Christ where he is the role of the husband and we are the role of the bride, awaiting for the marriage feast of the Lamb, right? And so what's happening is when we go against the covenant that Christ has enabled, the, the covenant that we have been brought into, we are the cheating spouse, It's similar to what we read in Jeremiah chapter 3. If you heard um, over and over again that harsh language that Jeremiah uses where you, you, you've played the whore. You've prostituted yourself out to the world. And that's the concern of James here. He's saying, you, you, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? It's at odds with God. He said, therefore, whoever desires to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy 
an enemy of God. So just like godly wisdom and worldly wisdom are at odds with each other, so is friendliness with the world and friendliness with God at odds with each other. The two do not walk hand in hand. But for many of us, we want to love God and still love the world. It's a challenge. It's a challenge in the church. See, for some of us, and for a lot of professing Christians, they want the the benefit of God without Him really interfering in our lives too much. I want salvation. I want heaven. But I really don't want you to get in the way of what I want to do. So, God, you can interfere as long as it's on my terms. For some of us also, we, maybe it shows itself in the way of we just want to kind of hold on to a precious sin. Right? Maybe there's just something that we just, we're not ready to give up quite yet. Sometimes it even is in the form of something like unforgiveness where we actually have comfort in the bitterness that we can have towards somebody who's wronged us. I'm just not ready to give that up. And so we try to minimize it, or we try to justify it, or we try to blame shift, or we may even say something along the lines of, this is just who I am. This is just who I am. This is how I was made. I'm not changing Or in another place, we want to serve God, but as long as it doesn't get in the way of the goals of our life. And so because of that, we find it, we find it hard to find time to get in the Word. We find it difficult to really uh, have any meaningful prayer time with the Lord. Hard to get to church. Hard to get to Bible study. Not really involved in any sort of ministry or discipleship. Because as much as I love you, God... The goals of the world are really where my heart is. And therefore, that's where my time is spent. But if I can wake up early enough, I'll spend 15 minutes with you. See, these sort of things, that's why James can say, you adulterous people. We want this covenant marriage with God but yet we have no problem and in many ways no remorse when we cheat on him with the world. And we seek after other gods and we worship idols just like Israel did in chapter 3 of Jeremiah. But to be friends with the world is to be enemies with God. That's what he says in verse 4. And so if we are making friends with the world, we are at odds with God. And remember the context of what we've been talking about through the book of James. What is James concerned with? James is concerned with our allegiance to Christ the King. He's concerned with our, our faithfulness. Right? Remember, we talked about this in the beginning. It's, yes, it is belief. We have to believe in order to be saved. But this idea of belief goes more than just paying mental assent. It's more than just recognizing that God is one. Because James says, so do the demons. 
What James is concerned with is this true belief that really is, comes out in allegiance to Christ, that we belong to Him, we serve Him because He is our one true King. And so what James is saying is, if that's the case, if you are making friends with the world, you have made an enemy with the King. You cannot swear loyalty to, king, to the king and then spend your life betraying him. The kingdom of the world is an enemy of the kingdom of God. Some verses uh, to help us understand this. First John 2.15 Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. In Luke 16, 13. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So, friendship with the world makes us an enemy of God because God and the world are at odds with each other. To be friends with one is to be enemies with the other, which is why the New Testament can also tell us in John 16, that these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble or tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. In John 15, 18, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Matthew 10, 38, Whoever does not take this cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Ralph was spot on this morning with that. 2 Timothy 3, 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So the New Testament is telling us throughout that there is a kingdom of the world and a kingdom of God. And the kingdoms are at odds with each other. And you cannot be in both. You cannot be a citizen of both. And so let me ask, are you an enemy of the world? It's a loaded question. Because we don't want to go out of our ways to just be hated by people. That's not the context here of what it means to be an enemy of the world. What Jesus is talking about in the New Testament and what Paul is talking about in this living a godly life will bring about persecution is because we are hated for our serving of God. We are hated for our loyalty to the King. Because there are many Caesars in the world that want to be worshipped and when you look at them and say, No, I serve one King, I worship one God, it makes you an enemy of Caesar. Are we being bold proclaimers of the gospel? Are we being bold proclaimers of the kingdom of God? Fulfilling that great commission. The mission that Christ gave us before he left, that we would go preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5 that we have a responsibility to expose evil for the purpose of calling people to repentance. But people don't like being exposed, which is why 
John chapter 3 says, they love the darkness and therefore don't come into the light. We don't want our true selves being exposed. But this is the call of the Christian. And if the Christian follows through with this call, you can see how it can become very easy to be an enemy of the world. Because you don't fall in line with what the, how the world thinks, or the wisdom of the world, or the terms of the world. Then in verse 5, James says, Or does the Scripture speak in vain? Does the Spirit that has caused us to, uh, that is, He has caused to dwell in us long enviously? Now this verse is very, it's, 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 it's an ambiguous verse. It's, and it's difficult to translate. Different commentators have different views. Some translators make God the subject. God yearns for your spirit, but actually the word God is not in the text itself. The way that I've seen it best translated is that James is here is asking a rhetorical question, which he does multiple times in his letter. And he's asking a rhetorical question in order to get a negative response. Does the Holy Spirit long with envy? Does the Spirit of God that God has caused to dwell within you, is this a self-seeking spirit? Does the Holy Spirit create these selfish conflicts that happen within the church? No. And that's the emphatic answer. No. So to be self-seeking is to be at odds with the spirit that God has given his children. And instead, we must recognize our own potential to fall into friendship with the world and ask for grace, not our selfish desires, which is why James ends his passage here by saying, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This ambition is not selfish ambition. It's ambition to serve our king, and it's an ambition that comes from a place of humility. And God blesses this sort of asking for grace. Right, because this is what James has been building on. This with the Sermon on the Mount, with the Beatitudes, right? What are we? We're poor in spirit, we're to be meek, we're to be merciful. These are postures of humility, not of pride. And so we come before the Lord, instead of being self-serving, we must come before the Lord and say, Lord, I, I, I recognize my selfish desires. I recognize at times my friendship with the world and my desires to be rid of this friendship with the world, my desires to be rid of these selfish desires and, and instead to, to have a posture of humility where I serve you and I worship you. And my desire is to serve you. And then there comes the promise from James. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Jesus is our picture of this humility. Right? Jesus did nothing from selfish ambition. He was not self-seeking. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. Paul says to his readers, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. 
have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, and those who are in the heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, our Lord is not self-seeking. Christ did not do this because he needed to. I was in a discussion recently with a friend of mine, and um, you know he had, he had posted something, and the discussion went where what he had posted said, if God didn't need you, he wouldn't have made you. Right? If God didn't need you, he wouldn't have made you. Now, since I know this friend well enough, and uh, we went to school together, I commented back and saying, well, he, the reality is, um, Paul says in Acts 17, that he doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. God didn't make you because he needed you. And by the way, that's a good thing. Because that means God's not obligated to like you. He created you because he desired you. He creates us out of an abundance of his love. That's why we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's why we are knitted together in the womb. That's why Genesis 2 takes such careful attention to the forming of man and the forming of woman. Why? Because God cares. Christ came not because he needed us. Christ came because he loved us. Dying on the cross to cleanse us of our sins, raising again from the dead to make a new world where God can be worshipped and glorified for eternity. This is the one whom we must believe in. This Christ, this is the one who must be our Lord and our King. And so I echo the words of Joshua. When you think of yourself as either friends with the world or friends with God, you must ask yourself, choose this day whom you will worship. Will you worship the world or will you worship Christ your King? And if we choose to worship Christ, then what is the response? What is the correct response? In this humility, we must destroy the idols in our lives that represent our friendship with the world. And this is why I had us read Josiah this morning, the story of Josiah. We, like King Josiah, must destroy the things in our lives that make us friends with the world. Our old self is a friend with the world. Our old self is an enemy of God. But our new self is a child of God and an enemy of the world. And so Paul says in Ephesians, put off the old self, put on the new. And it reminded me of a Puritan, John Owen, who said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. What are the things of this world that are calling out for your affections? What are the things that you desire? The things that promise you pleasure, the things that promise you freedom, but you know will actually make you a slave. Maybe it's pleasures, like James mentions here. Maybe it's pleasures like sex, drugs, alcohol. Maybe for some of us it's the pleasure of food and overindulgence. Maybe for some of us it's the pleasure of just having a good time. 
Or maybe it's comforts. The comforts of our old life. Family and friends. People that we know that we shouldn't be going back to because we've done it before. And we've seen how that turned out last time. Maybe for some of us it's the comfort of health. Maybe for some of us it's the comfort even of fear. Now, I know that sounds strange, but I think one of the idols of our lives today is we are a people who we kind of like and find comfort living in fear. There's a strange living on the edge that we seem to kind of enjoy, maybe especially in this country more than anything else. And when things aren't chaotic, it's almost strange. Maybe it's our desires, making idols out of our ambitions, success, money, knowledge. Or maybe it's even biblical concepts with worldly counterfeits. Justice, politics, serving others, love, marriage, parenting. All these things can be done well. All these things can be done for the Lord. But all these things have biblical definitions as well. And so these things get muddled and these things become idols as we build a friendship with the world because it becomes the world who defines how you interact with them. And so, our last point in the bulletin is looking forward to a world without war. And here's what I mean by that. Friendship with the old creation makes us enemies of God. But now that we have been made new, now that we have been brought into a new kingdom and into the family of God, what we really should be doing is making friends with the new creation that God is establishing. There will be a day where all conflict ceases because all selfish ambition is done away with. There is the fulfillment and the culmination of the new creation that we Christians are looking forward to. The day when Christ returns for his bride. This is the the new creation. And it has already begun now with the resurrection of Christ. And James says, even in his first chapter, that we are the first fruits of this new creation. What does that mean? This means, again, as God is in the process of making old things new, He begins with His people. He begins with the church. The church, you are the first fruits of this new creation. And so of all people, we have to have an allegiance to the new creation and to the new kingdom, not to the old world. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that too, where Paul says, you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. And so God is preparing us for this new creation by sanctifying us. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. We are sanctified by truth. What what does Jesus say in John 17? He says, Lord, sanctify them by truth. Your word 
is truth. We are sanctified by the word of God. Right? We read this earlier in, in Romans chapter 12. Do not be conformed to the image of the world, but have your minds transformed. Being transformed by what? The word of God. That is what transforms our minds. In 1 Peter 1, 2, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. So we are sanctified in truth. We are transformed by the word of God for the purpose of obedience. See, in this new creation, in this friendship with God, He demands your obedience. This is what Jesus says in the Gospel of John. If you love me, you will, what? Keep my commandments. You can't earn his love by keeping his commandments. You can't earn your way into the kingdom by doing enough obedience. But it's a sign that you have entered into the kingdom. It's a sign that you are new creation. It's a sign that you have been transformed by the word of God, that your response then is obedience. That is how you know that the Lord is working on sanctifying you. And then he ends with, I end with Philippians 1.6 here, being confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So we're trusting in seeing this sanctifying work of Christ in our lives. So that's the order here. That's, that's, you are transformed by the Word of God, and that transforming work of the Word of God makes you then obedient, the sanctifying work of obedience, and we recognize that we fall short. James says this in the last chapter. He said, we all fall in many ways. Even James recognizes, right? And he's an apostle. We fall in many ways. But we trust here. And we have hope here and confidence that he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So the key is not if you've fallen in perfection, you're therefore an enemy of God now and you're, you know, you're out of the covenant. No, no, no. What we're looking for is to be able to look at our lives as we examine ourselves, right? As James is kind of calling this throughout his letter to be examining yourself. And as you look at your life, do you see, do you see the sanctifying work of Christ taking place? Do you see that your mind is being transformed by the Word of God? Are you thinking differently? Are, are, are you thinking in terms of godly wisdom or worldly wisdom? Do you think in terms of what the Bible says or do you think in terms of what the world tells you to think? And as we're being transformed by the Word, that's a sanctifying work of Christ. And then the response to the, 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 the proof of the pudding, so to speak, of that transforming work is then we respond with obedience to the Lord. Not, out of, not an obligated obedience, but a loving obedience as we recognize, as we're being transformed, we recognize this is good. This is righteousness. This is true justice. This is holiness. This is how we've been called to live, and this is how we will live for eternity in the kingdom of God. And yes, when we fall, 
We confess, we repent, and we get back up and we move forward with the confidence and hope that we recognize that the Lord Jesus Christ will complete the work that he started in us. So we should be making friends with our new creation. Because this not only shows that we've been truly changed and made new, but it also shows that our eternal hope is in Christ. We look forward to the completion of all things, and we work in mission now toward that hope. Amen? So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to move into this time of communion here.